Well, I've entitled this final message in the book of Acts, Lord willing, till next year after Easter, we'll pick up in chapter 13, because we're going to leave off here in chapter 12. I've entitled this message, Game of Thrones. Go with me to Acts chapter 12. We're going to begin reading in verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reading of this incredible story in Acts 12. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the spiritual truth that will be deposited in our hearts and lives today. Holy Spirit, you are here. Thank you for your anointing upon your people to hear and receive this word. I thank you that there will be no distractions and that the entrance of your word will give light and illumination to our hearts and our pathway. I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen. In this story... God said to Herod, game over. He punched his ticket. He basically said, Herod, you've crossed the line. You're out of here. Now, what did Herod do that warranted God striking him down in that very moment? He crossed a line, line that you and I should never cross. He touched God's glory. You see, when the throne of man collides with the throne of God, there's only one predictable outcome. God wins every time. God rules. God wins every time. Herod thought that he could receive the praise and the adulation and the glory for that speech that he gave. You know, it's interesting, Josephus is a historian of the time of Christ. He wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a believer. And yet, he wrote about many of the events that occurred that are recorded in Scripture or verified by this historian. And Josephus wrote about this very moment. He said that Herod came out on this particular festival that they were having, and he was arrayed in a royal robe that was made of silver. And that when he spoke and the sun shined upon him, it glistened with brightness and majesty. And the people were overwhelmed, not only by what they saw, but by what they heard. And he took God's glory from him, and he accepted the praise of the people. And he crossed the line. You know, in life, there's nothing wrong with taking credit for your achievements. You work hard, you build a business, you build a company. You become successful in your calling, your craft, based on the gifts, talents, and skills that God has blessed you with. There's nothing wrong with receiving an award or a reward for your your work, 
and whatever achievements may come your way. And you could take credit for those achievements, but you should never take the glory. Because the glory always and only belongs to God. It always concerns me when I see these outstanding athletes and their accomplishments and achievements on the court or on the field or in a boxing ring or in a, in a cage. And they talk about how great they are. There's a difference in being confident and being cocky. And it always concerns me when they begin to talk about how great they are and they're the greatest ever and, you know, no one can defeat them and this, that, and the other. I'm like, whoa, whoa, be careful because it's almost as though you're inviting something bad to happen in your life because you're not only just taking the credit, but you're taking the glory. And you should never touch God's glory. I remember as a young man going to Bible school, and I heard some of the greatest preachers that have ever lived. Many of them have gone on to be with Jesus. They were great men and great women of God of the 20th century. They're no longer here. I remember one particular sermon as a, as a young man and young Christian follower of Christ wanting to be a pastor one day, and, and, the, and the preacher said, don't ever touch God's glory. He said, matter of fact, you young men in here, never touch the three G's of God. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, what are the three G's of God? He said, never touch God's glory, never touch God's gold, and never touch God's girls. <laughs> if you do, be warned, he said. Just one girl, the one you marry. Amen. You see, this moment in Herod, God judged him. It's interesting. It's kind of ironic that the chapter 12 begins with King Herod arresting the apostle James and killing him. And God says, oh, yeah? Two can play the same game. It ends with Herod being struck down by God. I would call that divine justice. It doesn't happen all the time. But there are times in Scripture, I know people don't preach about this anymore, I know, that God will kill somebody. Well, God's perfect love. He just love, loves, love. Yes, he does. But he's also a God of justice and a God of judgment and a God of wrath. Why do you think Jesus had to die on the cross in your place and my place? Jesus took the judgment. Jesus took the wrath that you deserved and I deserved on our behalf. All praise be unto our Savior, the greatest and only Savior of the world. Just in the same book, the book of Acts, just in chapter 5, remember what happened to Ananias and Sapphira when they went to church and they lied to the Holy Ghost? They dropped dead in the middle of service. Talk about having a smaller attendance the following weekend. <laughs> and then in, there are many examples of this, but the one that comes to my mind in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, they were inebriated, they were, they were drunk, and they went into the holy place and they offered up strange fire. And what does the Bible say? Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. There are times that God, you cross a line and he'll judge you. He'll judge you. In the Old Testament, I think of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the most one of the most powerful kings and had one of the most powerful, the Babylonian kingdom was the most glorious, richest, most powerful, wealthiest kingdoms in the history of the world. And one day Nebuchadnezzar went out on his balcony and he began to just gloat in his kingdom and in his power and in his might. And look at what it says in Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 30. And he looked out across the city and he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. <laughs> well, these words were still in his mouth. 
a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals, and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time or seven years will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. For the next seven years, he lives like a beast, a wild beast. His nails grow long, the Bible tells us. His hair grows long and matty. He's lost his mind completely. But at the end of the seventh year... This is what the Bible says happens. After this had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, my sanity returned, and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. To God be the glory. Thankfully, Nebuchadnezzar didn't have to breathe his last breath. God didn't punch his ticket yet. God didn't say, you're out of here. But he touched God's glory, and God taught him a valuable lesson he never forgot the longest day that he lived. There's another example to this. In the Gospels, Jesus tells the story of a, of a rich fool. Matter of fact, there are only a handful of times in the Bible that God refers to somebody as a fool. I actually want to do a sermon on that. And here's one of them in Luke chapter 12. Then Jesus told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm. That produced fine crops. Nothing wrong with that. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, friend. By the way, who talks to themselves like this? Friend, you have enough stored away for years. For years to come, now, take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, <laughs> say that with me, you fool. You fool. You will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool, Jesus said, to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. God told this man in this parable you touched my glory, you were lifted up in pride, and now, tonight, your soul will be required of you. One more example. There were these, in eternity past, there were the archangels, uh, Michael and Gabriel with ar archangels, but so was Lucifer. He was created with all types of musical instruments, and we believe that he led worship in eternity past. But angels, like humans, have free will, and he chose to rebel against God, Sin entered his heart willfully. He was lifted up in pride. And look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Really? I don't think so. Never touch God's glory. When man's throne 
or Satan's throne collides with God's throne, the outcome is predictable. God responds in that same chapter, here's what I will do to you. Here's what is going to happen to you. And he was cast out of heaven like a bolt of lightning, Jesus tells us. You know, God has a throne. You might call this Thronology 101. God has a throne. In Psalm 9-7, it says his throne is a throne of judgment. But not only that, in Psalm 11-4, it says that the Lord's throne is in heaven. The next verse, it says that God reigns over the nations and that God sits on his holy throne. God's throne is holy. The next one, Isaiah 66-1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And in Luke 1:52, he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, I'd like for us to read this out loud together. Here we go. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. God has a throne. And for the believer, it's not a throne of judgment because of what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. Aren't you thankful for that? It's a throne of grace. And you and I could come at any moment, at any time, and we can come boldly to the throne of grace, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is on the inside of you. Because of his death, burial, and resurrection, because he shed his blood 2,000 years ago, the veil in the temple that separated sinners from God from the Holy of Holies was rent top to bottom, and now we can enter in boldly because of the blood of Jesus. Without fear of shame, guilt, or condemnation. God has a throne. Man has a throne. And Satan has a throne. In our story, Herod and Herod's throne, it embodies and it represents all secular power and worldly power and worldly kingdom. It represents personal fame and power and popularity and wealth outside of God. That was Herod. That was his throne that he sat upon and he gloated upon that throne. But he did something wrong. He touched God's glory. His throne collided with God's throne. And when it did, he died and his throne crumbled. And he was eaten by worms. You know, we want to be careful in life that we don't spend our entire life building something. Building a life, building a family, building a marriage, building a business, building a ministry. And to see it come tumbling down. Because we allowed pride to enter in. Because we touched God's glory. Because we stopped just taking credit for our achievements and we began to take God's glory away from him. We need to make sure that we do what we do for his glory and for his honor. We need to make sure that everything that we do as Christians, that it doesn't end up wood, hay, and stubble. That everything we say and everything we do, if we don't say it and do it with the right motive, one day it will be tested as by fire, the Apostle Paul said. And that which was done in our name, that which was done with the wrong motive, it will be burnt up. It will become a pile of ashes, a puff of smoke, wood, hay, stubble, the Bible says. But everything that you do with the right heart, with the right motive, out of love for God and love for others... Paul said it'll be tested by fire and it will endure. It'll be like gold, silver, and precious stones. We need to make sure that we're not sitting on a Herod's throne, that we're not worshiping at the throne of Herod, of worldly fame and worldly power. Nor should we sit at Satan's throne. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, the first part of that verse, Jesus said, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You see, many people falsely believe that Satan is in hell right now. He's not. He's on the earth. He roams to and fro, Job, the book of Job tells us. 
He's called the devil because the name, the term devil means accuser. He falsely accuses you before God night and day. He's also called Satan because the name Satan means adversary. He's God's adversary, and he's your adversary. And he's as a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5, 8 says, seeking about whom he may devour. So we must resist him. We're in a spiritual warfare. We are in a spiritual battle. Paul said he's the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He's the prince and the power of the air. Satan has a spiritual throne, and it's literally in one particular city somewhere in the world today. And Satan's throne, what does it represent? Well, anytime we crown, listen to me, anytime we crown godlessness, when we call evil good and good evil, when we make unholy alliances and worldly alliances with the world, when sin is no longer condemned but tolerated, not even tolerated, celebrated, when the world's standards become the church's standards, we are worshiping at the throne of Satan. We must not worship at the throne of Herod or the throne of Satan, but God's throne. We must take our orders and our commands from God and God alone. We should worship and worship God alone. The throne of God is what is eternal. And when the throne of man or the throne of Satan collides with the throne of God, the outcome is predictable. God wins every time. So how can we make sure that we're not seated upon a Herod's throne or we're not worshiping at Satan's throne, but God's throne? Three things. Number one, we want to make sure that we stay humble. Oh, the, the power of humility, the grace and the virtue of humility. Jesus said, those that are the greatest among you are those that are servants. That to be great, you must be humble. Jesus not only taught that, but he, he lived that example before us. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus showed us, God in human form showed us what it's like to come and serve others and, and help others and be a blessing to others. It's so important that if we don't ever want to touch God's glory, we have to stay humble. I read a book many years ago by a famous author, many of you are familiar with, Jim Collins. And he wrote a book called Hubris, How the Mighty Fall. And he gives five stages of how the mighty fall. And the first stage is hubris born of success. Hubris born of success. That you see, sometimes the greatest opportunity for failure comes after your greatest victory in life. Because you let down your guard. Because we could allow ourselves to be lifted up in pride. You know, the Bible says that pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit, you know, before fall. Pride is the strength of sin. And pride blinds you to the danger ahead. Pride is the original sin, as they say. And here's what we've learned. When people become complacent in their success, in their blessings, they let down their guard. And then success can turn into entitlement, which is the worst of all. You begin to actually believe that you're entitled to this, that you deserve this, that you're owed this. Pride comes in and it blinds us. Jim Collins in his book, he called it this, The Silent Creep of Doom. It's silent, and it creeps in ever so subtly. He talks about in his book how history is replete with examples of how the mighty have fallen because of hubris, because of pride, because it blinds you to the dangers ahead. You don't see it because of pride, but a family member may see it, a loved one may see it, a pastor may see it, a minister or a priest may see it. But we're usually the last ones to see it. 
Collins talks about how the mighty Egyptian empire fell. The child dynasty fell. The Hittite empire fell. The Athens empire fell. Rome fell. Even Britain, he said, which stood a century before as a global superpower, saw its own demise and position in the world erode. He asked the important question, will the same thing happen to America? Yes, it will. And it is, unless America turns back to God. Unless America stops taking God's glory and starts giving God glory. And may it begin in our hearts and may it begin in our churches where we begin to give God the glory and the praise and the honor that's due his name. Help me, somebody. Stay humble. You know, when you begin to say things like, I think I'm humble, you know you're not. (laughs) This is a hard one. Humility is hard for all of us. It's against our nature, our Adamic nature, that is. You imagine on Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey and all the people were shouting and waving palm branches and praising and clapping and cheering. Could you imagine how foolish it would have been if that old donkey thought all of that was for him? (laughs) And after it's all said and done, all the accolades and the praise and all the achievements that you may accumulate in life, and I hope you accumulate many for God's glory. At the end of the day, it's all because of him, right? It's all because of him. It's all for him. Only God can take the ultimate credit. Only God gets the glory. We have to be careful with pride, don't we? And vanity. A pastor one day preached a powerful message on pride and vanity. And at the end of the sermon, a woman walked up to him and said, Pastor, would you please pray for me? And he said, well, what can I pray for you with? She said, your sermon convicted me. She said to him, I, I'm guilty of the sin of pride and vanity. I stand before the mirror hours upon hours, day after day, and I admire my beauty. And the pastor said, dear lady, that's not the sin of pride or vanity. That's the sin of exaggeration. <laughs> you see, if we don't humble ourselves, God will send others to humble us. But humility is a beautiful thing because there's beauty, listen to me, in brokenness. God uses broken things. Every farmer in here knows it takes broken soil to produce a crop, a broken seed, broken clouds to produce rain, broken grain to give bread, and broken bread to give strength as it's distributed. It is the broken alabaster box of Mary that anointed Jesus with that very costly perfume that was blessed of God. It was Peter Only after he was broken. You see, pride blinded him. Others will forsake you, Lord. I never will. Others will leave you. I never will. Oh, really, Peter? Before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. And no sooner did the the third denial come out of Peter's mouth that the cock crowed. And he looked at Jesus, one of the gospel says, and they looked eye to eye, and his eyes locked with the master's eyes, and he was broken on the inside. And he began, the Bible says, he went out and he wept bitterly. Why? Because when the, in the hour of his Lord's need, Peter was nowhere to be found. And he said, he told me this was going to happen. And even though he told me this was going to happen, I didn't believe it. He was broken. But out of that brokenness came beauty. Out of that brokenness came a mighty servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, maybe you're broken today. It's not all bad because God takes broken things and he blesses broken things 
And God can cause you to rise up like the phoenix from the ashes. And you can become better than ever before. Not in your own strength, but in God's strength. Humility. You got to stay humble. Stay humble. I like what Phyllis Diller said a long time ago. She said, you know what keeps me humble? Mirrors. Mirrors never lie, do they? <laughs> Thank God they never tell the truth either. Um, pride is about your glory, but humility is about God's glory. And the old saying is true, swallow your pride occasionally. It's not fattening. Life would go a whole lot better if we would just swallow that pride every now and then. Don't let it be seen. See, humility is the, the ability to give your pride, to give up your pride and still maintain your dignity. We're not talking about humiliation. God doesn't want you to be humiliated, but he does want you to humble yourself. If you want to never touch God's glory, number one, you need to be humble. Number two, you need to remain grateful. Yes, I know you English teachers out there were concerned all week because that's misspelled, but it's intentionally misspelled. I think great people are grateful people. I think grateful people are truly great people. That if you truly want to be great, you have to be grateful. I think what made King David such a special man to God, a man after God's own heart, wasn't because he was without his flaws. He had many flaws. In some sense, he had more flaws than the most wicked kings that ever lived. But one thing David had is he had a heart for God, a sweet spirit about him. He was a worshiper. You know why he was a worshiper? I'll tell you why people worship and don't worship. People who, who worship voluntarily and it comes natural to them, they're grateful people. And they feel as though they owe God praise and glory that's due his name. But at the end of the day, we all owe God the praise and the glory that's due his name. No one should ever force us or coerce us to worship. It should come as natural as, as a baby taking its first breath out of the mother's womb. Why? Because we know all that we are, all that we have, all that we will ever be is not because of us, but because of him. And to him be all the praise and all the glory. And may we remain grateful. David was a worshiper because he was grateful. He said things like this in Psalm 23, verse 5, my cup runneth over. You should always go through life and, and see the areas of your life where your cup is running over. Don't look at the empty cups in life. Hey, we all have from time to time some empty cups in life. But I declare you have more full cups that are running over than you have empty cups. So keep your eyes on the full cups that are running over because God at the end of the day is good. Don't go through life counting your woes. Go through life counting your wows. And don't grumble because you don't get what you want. Be grateful that you don't get what you deserve. Amen. Amen. You know, I'm reading through the book of Numbers and <laughs> the children of Israel were chronic complainers. Chronic complainers. Do you know someone like that? Look straight at me right now. <laughs> Nothing's good enough. Complain about work. Complain about their boss. Complain about their marriage. Complain about their kids. Complain about their car. Complain about their country. Complain about the government. Complain about church. Complain, complain, complain. Finally, God got tired of their complaining. God is long-suffering, but there is an end to it. And the children, they were complaining about the water. Complaining about the food. Don't want manna. We want meat. You want meat? I'll give you meat. He sent quail from all around the world and just buried them in quail. There, have you had enough? It's coming out their ears. Have you had enough? No, stop. No, I'm going to give you more quail. I mean, God's real in the Old Testament. Amen. They kept complaining, and God said, okay. You know what he did in Numbers 21? He sent in fiery serpents to bite them and sting them with venom. You know why? It's fitting. 
Because all griping and complaining is like a poisonous venom that's, that's, that's toxic, that infects others and infects your soul. So God sent all these serpents and they said, please, God, stop these serpents from biting us. And so God said, okay, they've had enough, Moses. Put a serpent on a pole and set it up. And, and that's actually the symbol of medicine, by the way. And they said, whoever looks at the serpent on the pole, which represented Christ who died, he, he never committed sin, but he came sin's powerful um, spiritual application of that. Whoever looked at this serpent on the bronze pole lived. And those that didn't died. That's the bell ringing. That means that's a knockout punch right there. Amen. <laughs> so let's be grateful. Turn to your neighbor and say, I know you're a grateful person. I can see it on your face. You just have the countenance of a great. Tell them. Speak faith if you have to. You have a countenance look. Uh, you, have a, you have a glorious countenance about you. That means you're a thankful person. I think grateful people are the most beautiful people. You know what uh, Godhold Ephraim Lessing said? A great spiritual mentor of long ago. A grateful thought toward heaven is of itself a prayer. Oh, I believe that. Just thinking grateful thoughts is like offering God a prayer. How many know life would be better if we were more thankful and complainless? Come on, somebody, give me a witness. Am I the only one that this applies to? So, you never want to touch God's glory, but always give Him glory. Stay humble, be grateful, and finally, number three, remain helpful. Remain helpful. Go through life with a servant's heart. That's the example of our Lord. He did not come to be served even though he was a king, even though he was God in human form. He came to serve. He grabbed a towel, placed it around him, got on his knees and washed the feet of his disciples. He left you and me an example of what it means to be a servant. Show up in your marriage and serve. Show up to your kids to serve. Kids, show up at home to serve your parents. Show up at work with a servant's heart. Show up to church with a servant's heart. I, I'm so appreciative of, of how ministry takes place throughout the week here at Trinity not just because of our amazing staff that we have, and we have like the best staff. It's because we have amazing volunteers. There are those that are serving right now in children's ministry so that you, mom, dad, can be here in, in service. Make sure and thank them when you go to, to pick up your kids. Thank God for those that help out in the parking lot and the ushers and the greeters and, and those that serve in many different capacities here within our church and ministry. They're the ones that make ministry happen. And really, at the end of the day, serving people are the most happy people. There's what's called, and they've done research on this, people that are naturally altruistic. There's what's called a helper's high. What's a helper's high? A helper's high is, is when you help somebody else in need, but the reality is when you help somebody else in need, you get blessed more than they do. How many of you, you've experienced that? As you've helped others, you receive, wow, this is actually doing more for me than it is, than it is for them. There's something special about going through life, having an attitude of a servant remaining helpful. Isaac Edwardson said, a river is measured by the water it brings to the sea, a fountain by its overflow, and a Christian by his or her helpfulness to others. That's the one thing, the, the one true mark of Christianity over the last 2,000 years are Christians who are willing to roll up their sleeves and get down in the messiness of life and help somebody else, help lift up an alcoholic, help lift up a drug addict, help lift up someone that's uh, caught up in sexual sins. And, and to help them and lead them to the cross and, and watch how God's word and the spirit of God can cleanse them and set them free. To lend a helping hand to those that are, that are experiencing a time that they're, they're down and out in their life. For whatever reason it might be, to lend a helping hand to others. To be an Aaron and a her. 
I think of Moses, he was in a, a spiritual battle with the Amalekites, and Joshua was down there uh, fighting the battle, and, and he was on a mountaintop. And God said, as long as you lift your hands and the rod of God in your hand up towards me, they'll win the victory. But he began to get weary. He began to get tired. His hands began to drop. And as his hands dropped, they began to lose the battle. Until two individuals by the name of Aaron and Hur came alongside. And one got on one side of Moses and lifted up his arm. The other got on the other side of Moses and lifted up his arm. And as his arms went back up, the victory was secured in the one down below for Joshua and the Israelites that were fighting. I hope you have an Aaron and a Hur in your life. I hope you have a friend that's like an Aaron and a Hur. I hope you have a spouse that's like an Aaron and a Hur. I hope there are people in your life that help lift you up and not tear you down. It's so easy to tear others down. But we need to be that type of person in our relationships. We need to be that Aaron and that Hur to somebody else. I love the story of Nathaniel Hawthorne. He was a great writer in the, 18, in the 1800s. One day he was, he was relieved of his government appointment, his government position, and he went home, and he was dejected and depressed and despondent, and his wife noticed it. She said, what's happened? What's going on? And he told her what had happened. He was fearful about his future and being able to provide for his family. And she did something. She lit a fire under him. She went into another room, and she grabbed paper and a pen and brought it back and said, okay, now you have the opportunity to write that book that's in your heart, those thoughts that are in your mind. And it said, they, in the story it says, that as though she cast a magic spell over him, all of a sudden inspiration came and motivation came. He began to write and he never stopped writing until he amassed a great fortune and became legendary as an author and as a writer. I hope when you're down you have people that come to you and don't say what Job's wife said. You're still alive. Why don't you curse God and die? We need a spouse that, will, that knows how to get a hold of God and pray with us. I pray that every man in here has a wife like that. I pray every wife in here has a husband like that. I pray every young person has a parent like that. I pray that every parent has a young son or daughter that's an encouragement to you, that prays for you, that believes in you, that speaks words of faith over you, that you may be down, but you are not out. You may have lost one opportunity, but God's going to give us another opportunity. God's not finished with you yet, and it's not over. Because if you and I worship at the throne of grace, God is going to come to your defense. You can count on that. You take out one of God's people, God will take you out. <laughs> I know that's not preached much, but Acts 12, that's what happened. I love how some preachers, they're always ultra, 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 hyper, hyper, hyper positive. They can't preach on certain verses in the Bible. Actually, there's only about hundred verses in the Bible they can preach from. Because <laughs> there's some hard stuff in here. Like Acts 12. And I don't know how they twist it. They're like, well, it really wasn't an angel of the Lord. It was uh, the devil. He opened up the door to the devil. And it, no, 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 no. You touch God's glory. Beware. When the throne of man or the throne of Satan eventually collides with the throne of God, there's only one predictable outcome. God wins every time. I'd like every head, let's thank the Lord. Can we do that? I'd like every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we just humbly, humbly come before you. What's the message? Just take a moment. Don't be in a rush.
What's this message saying to you today? If anything, I believe it's saying something. I believe the Lord is reaching out to you. Is it maybe an area of, of pride that you need to surrender? Do it. God loves you. Turn it over to Him. Is, is it an area of ingratitude? They say, I, I read this once, that the greatest sin in the Old Testament is the sin of ingratitude, that all other sins stem from that sin. You see, when we're not grateful for God, we make our own gods. Ultimately, the, the ultimate sin of idolatry comes out of ingratitude. Be grateful. Be thankful. Not everything may be going your, your way right now. That's understandable. For, well, who, who has a life where everything's always going well for them? No one does. But God is still good. And he'll still come to your aid. Have you not been as thankful as you should be? And how about being helpful, remaining helpful? Are you, are you helpful? Do you have a servant's heart? Have you lost it along the way? I, I know there's some mean people in the world, and it seems like they don't, they're not grateful for the help that you give them. That's okay. You're doing it as under the Lord. Remember the example of Mother Teresa. But most importantly, remember the example of Jesus. The very ones that spat upon him, the very ones that mocked him and abused him, or the very ones he died on that cross for, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Be humble. Be grateful. Remain helpful. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Christ, today's the day, now's the time. Jesus is standing at the door of your heart knocking. If you'll hear his voice and open the door of your heart, he'll come into you and have fellowship with you. You can be born again. Maybe you're here today and you've never, you, need, you need to rededicate your life to Christ. Well, the Lord's calling you home. It's time to come home. You've been away from the Father's house far too long. The Lord is willing and the Lord is ready to receive you back. On both accounts, I want you to pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. I want you to say it with your own mouth and mean it from your own heart. Here we go. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit, and give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today. I will worship at your throne and your throne alone. I will not touch your glory but I will give you glory, the glory that is due your name and only your name forevermore. Amen. Let's thank the Lord together. Can we do that, church family?